the great everything. Where are you? It's been too long. Come back to Anchor. All right, all right, Jesus. No need to get so aggressive about it. I'm here fucking hell. Anyway, hello, welcome to The Great Everything, an exploration of our wealth through culture and philosophy. I'm Patrick, a former banking lawyer who saw the light and quit to dedicate my life to stuff that actually matters. I've been away for a while, as you heard, uh, more than usual. In fact, uh, it's been a week, and uh, that is by far the longest break I've taken since I started this podcast over a year ago now, so apologies for that. Life stuff happened. Bad stuff, cancer stuff, legal stuff, all sorts of shit stuff that I'm uh, struggling to work my way through. I'm slightly entangled with life right now, trying to um, figure out how to survive, frankly. I'll perhaps update you on some of those things at a later date. But for now, I'd like to talk about fake news. That's our topic of the day. It was going to be a show about the French philosopher René Descartes or rather what we can learn from Descartes' approach to thinking, you know, in order to update our own mental toolkit. But as I was doing my research, it hit me just how relevant Descartes is to our time. Because Descartes isn't just one of the handful or so of milestone philosophers in the history, in the evolution of Western thought. The fact is, We're dealing with a philosopher whose main message, in my view, is about dealing with uncertainty. He came along during one of our civilization's big turning points, you know, one of those crossroads in the way we live, the way we think, the way we relate to the world. His was a time of great political and intellectual confusion and chaos. And one of the big questions that people were grappling with was, what can we know? What is true? And in many ways, today with social media, with fake news, with our distrust and expertise, we're going through something quite similar, right? I'd say we too are in a state of confusion as to what the facts are, what sources we can trust, who we can trust at all, what we can say is true. And so as I was doing my reading, my thinking moved away from just Descartes more in the direction of where are we in our social landscape? Because sure, there truly is real value in coming to grips with Descartes and his main ideas, and more importantly, his method of thinking, you know, critical thinking, that's so valuable today. But what really matters isn't Descartes, it's where we are, who we are. And if it's not a place or a people that we're okay with, what can we do to change it? What can we learn and apply in our own lives to better navigate our own post-truth world? So, that's what I want to reflect on today. Can you dig it? I ain't embarrassed to use the word. Can you dig it? I'm talking about ethics. Can you dig it? We're all familiar with the concept of fake news, but I'm not so sure we necessarily understand all of its full implications. For many, fake news just seems to be what the other guy thinks is true, or you know, the lies the other side believes. So talking politics, if you're a rational person on the left, fake news will mean bullshit stories like Hillary Clinton is running a pedophile ring out of a pizza joint, or Pope Francis endorses Donald Trump. If you're a rational person on the right, fake news might mean something different. You know, those simplistic and misleading narratives like the difference in earnings between men and women is because of sexism. And that's if you're being reasonable. But the less reasonable and the more extreme you are on either side, the more likely it is that you're just going to start conflating the term fake news with news I don't like. So on the right, you know, you're going to start calling anything from the New York Times or CNN or NBC the liberal media, you're going to start calling that fake news. And on the left, you might be sceptical about anything from Fox News, obviously, but also any story involving violence committed by, you know, radical activists or Islamic terrorists, you're going to, you're going to raise your eyebrow at that news. And you won't care if it actually happened or not. So to summarize, in our popular imagination, fake news is basically just the other side's bullshit. 
Except it goes so much deeper than that. It goes deep into the roots of our human psychology and the mechanisms of how we read the world and how we interact with it. And we have to understand these mechanisms and how they work because if we don't, all we can do is just join in the noise and contribute to the senselessness and the shouting. Or, at best, we can just stare in stunned silence at this rising chaos. Fake news, post-truth, alternative facts, these terms are just different shades, they're different angles of the same intellectual or anti-intellectual trend. And this trend is founded on a premise that whatever your opinion, no matter how true or untrue, or no matter how weird or absurd, there is no independent objective reality that can push back against your version of the truth. Or that if there is such an objective reality, it is powerless to tell you you're wrong. Think about that for a minute. Let that sink in. The whole point of objective reality, or to be more precise, on what we agree is objective reality, is its fact-checking power. You know how when you're a teen you think you know everything best, <laughs> you're the shit, right? Your parents, your teachers, everyone else is just a dumbass. But you, you get it. You just know what's up. And then you'll say something super arrogant or you might overestimate your ability or attractiveness. That's usually the thing with me, right? And some adult will tell you that you need a reality check. Because that's what reality does, right? It checks you. If you put your beliefs to the test, reality can either confirm them, in which case we call those beliefs true, or reality can disabuse you of your bullshit. Look at me, I can fly. No, you can't. And the reason you know you can't is because when you jump out the window, reality will slam you in the face. And so will the pavement. But what if you refuse to accept reality's feedback? What if you can't differentiate reality from fiction? What if you refuse to even acknowledge that reality exists? If I'm like that, I might think, it's not that objective reality is disproving my theory. It's just a different opinion. It's all just fake news. So instead, I'm going to pick my truth. I'm going to find sources that confirm my version of the facts and that give me the reality I want to live in. It's like a virtual reality, but where you get to pick the settings. You choose your info, you choose your sources, you choose the people you interact with, you filter out the people and the facts you disagree with, and that's all you consume your opinion, your version of the truth, all day, every day, and to the exclusion of all else. That's the air you breathe, it's the water you swim in, it's your reality. I can fly! No, you can't, says reality. Oh, yes, I can, says you. In fact, here's 5,000 other people on Facebook who also say I can fly. Oh, yeah? Well, try jumping out of a window, then. See what happens. Oh, uh, thing is, why would I jump out the window? I don't need to jump out the window. I don't need to prove anything to you or anyone on your side. I don't need to prove that I can fly. I just need to keep living like I can fly. And for that, all I need are enough people who are willing to be vocal about the fact that I can fly. It's crazy when you think about it, but it's what's happening. There's a British philosopher I follow, A.C. Grayling, and as he says, in the age of fake news, strong opinion can shout down evidence. The comedian Ricky Gervais, you know, from The Office, the original Office, he's got a new Netflix special, and he talks about this, and he says, It used to be that my opinion is worth as much as your opinion, but now it's my opinion is worth as much as your fact. That's where we're at, boys and girls. And, you know, it's not like this process is all intentional. There's all sorts of different influences at play here. It's such a complex problem. Social media, right? Social media, I mean, sure, it means I can find my own sources and it means I can block people I don't like and I can mute voices I disagree with. But the business model for these big tech companies is that they want your attention. So Facebook and Google, they're incentivized to give you exactly what you want to see and hear and consume because that's what you'll read and that's what you'll click on and that's what you'll share and that's what you're going to spend time consuming and they want that time. So their algorithms are constructed to highlight stories similar to the ones you've already liked, to suggest videos just like the ones you've already watched, and also to fill your newsfeed with updates from people you most frequently interact with, regardless of how much or what they post. 
It's a model that's optimized for confirmation bias. What you already believe is what you see more of. So you're now in this bizarre virtual landscape where you've built a whole world, a whole identity on the basis of just one version of the truth, the one that you like the most, or worse, on the basis of a lie. And as far as possible, you're going to shut out all the other versions of the truth. You're going to safe space yourself from ideas and facts that don't fit your narrative. And so now you're insulated. You're in this bubble, this filter, whatever you want to call it, echo chamber, that's a fashionable one. Except, no matter how hard you try, we're in a globalized world now, and anyone with a Twitter handle can at you and tell you what they think. So what happens when we come across someone else's truth? Well, here's the thing, and the danger. We've already discussed in other episodes how interacting with people who share your views leads to becoming more extreme in our views, more radical. So yeah, you know, the polarization, the tribalism I'm always complaining about, that's also part of this fake news issue, but it's not the point of this episode. So if you want to know more, Google Cass Sunstein, C-A-S-S, and Colorado Springs. Cass Sunstein is the guy that ran these experiments on radicalization and groupthink. Very interesting stuff. But back to fake news. So if you're in one of these safe space bubbles, left, right, Christian, Muslim, atheist, vegan, whatever, you're likely to become more extreme, more ideological, less tolerant, less open to different viewpoints. And now you've made contact with a whole other reality, one that doesn't fit your version, and one which you've specifically rejected as being lies to be shouted down or at best ignored. So what happens? One of three things happens. The same things that happen whenever you come across someone you don't like, from the schoolyard to work to politics. One, you can ignore them. You can stay out of each other's way. If it's online, you block them, you mute them, you know, you do what you need to do. I mean, it's not ideal because it contributes to this insulation of different viewpoints from each other, but you can do that. But here's another thing. Sometimes you can't ignore each other. Sometimes you might want the same thing, or you might be in each other's way. You might be an obstacle to each other's goals. What do you do then? There's a second option. You can talk about it. You can enter into a dialogue. Except, of course, with dialogue, you need two to party, right? You know, and, and you need everyone to be willing to engage in dialogue or able to. And on what basis can you communicate with someone who doesn't even agree with what the facts are? Hey, that kid just stole my pencil. No, he didn't. How do you reason with someone who doesn't even acknowledge the same facts as you? And some other people, they even go as far as rejecting the whole idea of reason dialogue. Because reason, logic, debate, they're just tools of the oppression, of the white supremacy. How do you talk with those people? So dialogue can be the solution. But we need to figure out how to get through to people who might as well be living in a different universe. And that's not easy. And often, of course, dialogue just isn't possible. What do we do then? The third option, the only one that kind of becomes inevitable if the others fail. Because you can try to ignore each other, and then if that fails, you can try and communicate. But if communication breaks down, then there's no other option but conflict. Ignore, communicate, fight. No alternatives. One of these three always happens when worlds collide. And each of us is a world and we are constantly colliding. So we need to pick which of these we feel most comfortable with and which one is most worth spending our time and effort on to try and build a world that is better, if only slightly better, than this one. Let me paint you a picture for context. Actually, context, too, is such a loaded word. I say it and I just realize how relative it all is. Think about it. In and around any situation, there's literally infinite facts you could cite. Which of those facts is relevant? Which of those is good context? It all depends on the story we're choosing to tell. What's happening right now here, right? Let's say this is a scene in a movie, and I'm talking into a microphone doing this podcast. 
Around me, there's infinite things that the camera could focus on. You know, the, the microphone, you could have me up in front and center, and, you know, every detail of my expression visible as I talk. Or I could be out of focus. You can't even really hear my voice properly. It's sort of like a montage of what's going on in the room. You know, the camera will focus on a fly going up the wall or, you know, an empty mug of coffee on the table next to me. Maybe that's too much detail. Maybe it's not good context for the film of Patrick Records a Podcast. Maybe the relevant context here is, you know, my location, my surroundings, or my history. You know, maybe there's um, the scene is cut with uh, flashback scenes from when I was a young boy, you know, playing with audio equipment or, you know, showing how, oh, this guy, he always had a passion for audio. Or maybe none of it matters, because actually the movie isn't about Patrick recording a podcast. It's a movie about you, and in this scene, you just happen to be listening to the podcast. So actually, none of this matters. And in fact, me talking, my voice coming out of uh, your car stereo, that is the context to your story. So your surroundings, what you're doing, you know, where you're driving, what you had for breakfast, those are relevant context. You see what I mean? The story we're telling determines which facts we choose to highlight. You're probably thinking, okay, well, what has this got to do with anything? But I'm asking you, bear with me, because this is really, really important. What today's show is about is how to navigate our confusing social and political landscape. And to do that, we need to understand the power of narratives, of stories, how they work, how we cling to them for meaning, and how we are the ones that create that meaning, in the way we connect different dots. Because we're story-making machines, us humans. That's what we do. We connect different facts and events so that it all makes sense, so that the world has structure, so we can move our way around it. And I'm talking about the most basic, granular level, you know, cause and effect. The dots we're connecting here would be stuff like fire, hand, pain. Okay, if I touch the fire with my hand, it hurts. Don't touch fire. That's how we connect the dots, and that's the lesson we learn. That's the message. That's the meaning. Don't touch fire. It's not just humans who do this, by the way. You know, my childhood dog, Ralph, he used to sit at the front of our shop with his paws stretched out right in front of him. And once this black kid on a bike rode over his paws and it was painful and yada yada. So my dog, he connected the dots, bike and pain. So from that moment on, every time he saw someone on a bike, he went berserk. He chased them. It was, you know, scary. This was a big German shepherd. So... Now, there was also another problem that he made a different connection as well. He made a connection between pain and black people. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Shit. So from that moment on, he just really didn't like black people. And I'm telling you, he wouldn't listen to reason on that topic. Let's just say I'm glad this was in the 80s, because if it happened today, you have this big, angry German shepherd growling at every black guy on the street and me, you know, with my shaved head today, trying to keep my racist dog in check. I mean, imagine the optics. But anyway, the point is, we as animals, we must have evolved to prefer order to chaos. We can't deal with just randomness, because how do we make sense of a world that is senseless? Think of what it must be like for a life form so unevolved, it doesn't even grasp cause and effect. It doesn't get basic connections. It doesn't get that the consequences of uh, nutrition means more life or that lack of nutrition means death. The world is just random. It just, you know, does things without any guide for what will work and what won't. A creature like that is never going to survive. It has no chance, no means of surviving in the long run. It wouldn't have any internal guidelines or mechanisms for what to pursue and what to stay away from. So I suppose we must have evolved from life forms, and I mean hundreds of millions of years ago, life forms that did have these basic algorithms within them. You know, if this, then that. See, that's a connection right there. And on a macro scale, we connect things together in stories, and, and the way we connect them gives us meaning. That's what stories are, right? Facts plus meaning. The great author and expert on storytelling and screenwriting, uh, Robert Mackey, he said this well in his book Story. The queen died, the king died. That's just two facts. But connect them like this. The queen died, then the king died of heartbreak. And suddenly you have a story. You have meaning. And that's all we do, all day long. We connect facts into stories, into narratives. And then these narratives are shared. 
you know, stories like, hey, hey, you know that guy? Yeah, you know, the big invisible guy who carries the sun across the skies in his chariot, and we have to appease him because if we don't, he's going to get pissed off and he's going to take the rain away and we won't get fruit and vegetables. Oh, that guy? Yeah, yeah, sure, I know that guy. Hey, hey, but what about you? You know how, uh, you know, you're not supposed to eat human flesh because your firstborn is going to be a zombie or some shit? No way, is that what happens? Yeah, 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 you know, that's what they told me at least. Oh, yeah? Yeah, yeah, go spread the word. That's called culture. That's shared narratives. Well, it's not always shared voluntarily, you know. Sometimes the narrative is imposed, you know. You'll take over the neighboring village and, Hey, um, remember that sky dude with the chariot and the rain and, you know, who's kind of my boss? Well, now he's your boss too. <laughs> That's how narratives spread. You know, they get shared by more and more people and then they become like a virtual reality we all live in. Hey, uh, you know that shiny yellow metal that's kind of shiny and useless, but I guess you can make a cool bracelet out of it? Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that stuff. Uh, pretty, but sure is useless. Yeah, yeah, well, actually, they say it's uh, really precious. And I heard that there's this uh, game people play where, you know, the person that gets most of it wins. Oh, yeah? Is it fun? Well, I guess it must be. Everyone's playing. It's kind of going viral. That's a narrative, too. And you know it's just a virtual reality culture narrative because if enough people pick up the shiny metal and say uh, remind me again what it is I can actually do with this stuff then it's game over so what am I saying here I guess what I'm saying is we need narratives as individual animals we need them to make sense of our surroundings and our relationships but we also need them on a civilizational scale as a culture for there to be a culture and those cultural narratives, they need to be shared, because just like with gold or currency or religion or morals, if too many people start saying, nah, you know, that's just your story, it's not my story, then what is it that holds that culture together? Right, so Descartes. Okay. For a thousand years, we had a big cultural narrative. There was this guy in the sky, and he had a kid, and the kid pissed off the wrong people, and the Romans got involved, they nailed him to a cross, and he died, but then he came back to life, kind of like Superman, but he didn't stick around, and one day he's going to come back, and that day the Jews are in trouble, I guess. I know, it's weird, but for centuries, this was real. All that stuff was real. All the stuff about the Garden of Eden, the rib, the dude and the whale, all that was absolute, literal truth. It's hard for us to understand this, right? Because today we're so different in so many ways. We all know how to read, for starters, more or less. I mean, we still fuck up your and your. And I honestly have no idea why so many Americans think would have is spelled would of. But the point is, we have basic education. And we understand that science is a thing. And also we're used to a world where different truths, different viewpoints, you know, Republican, Democrat, Christian, atheist, all these different viewpoints, we're used to that. But we didn't have that in the Middle Ages in Europe. We were just a bunch of ignorant peasants. We had about as much knowledge of the outside world as a dog. Imagine that. Imagine a world that beyond the confines of your home, your garden, your tiny remote village is just pitch black. You have no idea what's going on. You're in the dark. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what shape it is. You don't know the map. You don't know where any of the world goes. You don't know where the roads go. It's... It's kind of like being in a tiny spaceship, you know, a spaceship about as big as your car, but you're in a parallel dimension where outside the window, it's just jet black. And you don't even know if any of the laws of physics apply. It's just you're completely ignorant, pure ignorance. That level of just cluelessness, it's hard for us to imagine today. But that's who we were. That's what we were like. And among that ignorance, you had the constituted power the church, you know, and these are the people who read, and they're the people who dress nice, and they look so impressive and so smart. They must know what's up, right? And they're saying, trust us, this is what's happening. There's this invisible guy, and he sees everything that you do, and he doesn't like you fucking, and the sun is going around us, etc., etc., etc. So what are you going to do? You're going to start questioning that? How? From what position? You're an ignorant farmer. You know, don't know anything. And questioning just isn't part of your education. It's not part of what you were taught. It's not part of your values. And all these stories, by the way, they make a lot of sense. And everyone around you, all the people you love and respect, your, your father, your grandfather, your mother, your kids, they all believe it. 
So who are you to think any different? So you shrug, and you just teach the same to your kids, and you pass it on, and life goes on. And oh, by the way, anyone who starts saying anything different, anyone who threatens the shared narrative, they're called heretics, and they get silenced, harsh. They get taken away, they get tortured, they get killed, they disappear. So what you have here is a very straightforward example of a shared cultural narrative promulgated and enforced by a powerful and unquestionable authority who can silence any divergence from the narrative. That is a world of absolute certainty. Medieval Europe is a world of absolute certainty. But then, everything changes. Commerce starts opening up. You know, Genghis Khan and his crew, they, they've established control over, well, pretty much everywhere east of Europe. And they've pretty much created this safe highway that goes all the way from Hungary to China. It's a territory that used to be crawling with bandits, but now it's open for trade. So money starts coming in. And a while later, 1348, the Black Death wipes out one-third of the whole world's population. A third. Today, that would be 2.5 billion people. So now, there's less manpower. So the people who can work in the fields and stuff, they're now in demand. So wages go up. Again, more money. See what I'm saying? People are getting richer. And richer people, they get smarter. And they can't be pushed around quite as much as peasants. And in all this, there's these other guys, these intellectuals like the poet Petrarch and the artist Michelangelo. They start looking back at a time before the shared narrative, back at the ancient Greeks and Romans, and they're saying, wow, these guys, they might not have accepted Jesus in their hearts, but have you read their books? Have you seen their statues? These guys were way ahead of us in so many ways. Could it be there's more than one way to do this, more than one way to live? So now, that single absolute narrative of the church, that single narrative is in danger. But so far it's okay, because at the end of the day, you know, these people, Petrarch, you know, the, the Renaissance artists, they're still buying into the main narrative, they're still Christian. Petrarch is framing his whole poetry in a Christian light. Michelangelo, he's painting God and Adam, you know, still the same imagery, still the same stories. They're just opening it up a little to a bit of, you know, viewpoint diversity. But in the meantime, something else is happening. Gutenberg comes up with the printing press. Uh-oh. You know, suddenly books, right? Which used to be copied by hand by monks, you know, which made them just a little more expensive than your average illiterate farmer could afford. Suddenly books and pamphlets, anyone can get their hands on them. And once you have random plebeians reading, even just reading the Bible, well, think about it. What happens when you read a book? You come up with your own mental images, you come up with your own meanings, your own interpretations. And what if your interpretation isn't the same as the interpretation of the church? What if it's not the same as the church-sanctioned official narrative? See what's happening? Fragmentation. And then, you know, the shit really hits the fan. Martin Luther, Calvin, Protestantism. These people, they have very different ideas about what went down with Jesus and what we should do about it. Now, don't get me wrong, you know, throughout the Middle Ages, we always had Martin Luther's. There were always Calvins popping up to challenge the official narrative of the church. Except they didn't have big followings, you know, they'd get ignored. And if they made way too much noise, you know, they'd be kidnapped and tortured and killed. The church would move on. But now, Martin Luther's version? That stuff can get its own pamphlet. Suddenly, everyone's heard of it. Worse, everyone's reading it. Some very powerful people in France and Germany, they're like, yeah, I like this version better. It's like the Renaissance version of Twitter. You can't stop it once it's gone viral. And now the big single dominant narrative that's held for a thousand years, it's being challenged on all sides, you know, by a new artistic vision in the Renaissance, by powerful voices with big followings and political backing, and even ordinary folk who aren't maybe challenging as much as just saying, oh, so there's more than one choice, you know, for what to believe and how to think? If that's the case, you mind if I look at the menu a second? So the church scrambles, and then it comes down hard. 
the Counter-Reformation. It starts doing what the powerful usually do when their narrative gets challenged by a different one. They silence it. The philosopher Giordano Bruno, he says, hey, actually, you know, it's, um, it's funny. I've been doing some research and there's this thing called the solar system. And the church grabs him and they burn him at the stake in public. See what happens? If you ever come to Rome, you can actually find his statue in the middle of the square, in Campo dei Fiori, the very spot they killed him. And a while later, Galileo comes along and he's like, hey, um, by the way, remember how you said the earth was at the center of the universe? And the church just gives him a look and points over at Giordano Bruno's charred remains and Galileo goes, never mind. So things get messy. But the cat's out the bag. Now, there's still a dominant narrative, but now the contender is no longer some fringe Twitter account with 23 followers. Now it's big. So, people are asking, which narrative should we believe? Which one is the truth? Which is fake news? Are both bullshit? And what about this science thing people are talking about? You know, people like Francis Bacon and Galileo. What are they doing? What about Harvey and Boyle and all these other people coming up with all these weird ideas about planets and psychology and optics and chemistry? You know, it's a scientific revolution. And with the scientific revolution, the whole point is questioning. It's saying, I don't know God moves the stars and the orbs in accordance with a heavenly harmony. I don't know things fall to the ground because God imbued the air with a fall-to-the-ground property. I don't know shit. So I'm going to find out by myself, methodically. See where I'm going with this? The medieval world, a world of absolute certainty, had suddenly become a world of doubt. And that's where Descartes comes along. René Descartes is uh, one of those philosophers who, even if you don't know philosophy, you know at least one thing this guy said, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. That sounds like a pretty obvious thing to say until you place it in context, because he's in this age of crumbling certainties, of conflicting narratives, and consequently a fraying of the social order, right? How can you hold together a civilization where everyone has a different opinion about what's going on in the Bible? Where the church, you know, the very upholder of the order of society, as sanctioned by the Almighty, no less. And the church is under a credible threat from Protestantism. And where some people, you know, scientists, are pretty much ignoring the Bible altogether. They're just doing their thing. Or to frame the question in a way that's perhaps more relevant to our time. Where do you find certainty? in a world of uncertainty. So Descartes, in his meditation, he says this, I'm going to question everything, and I'm going to use that method to find the truth. I'm not going to find a belief. I'm not going to find a narrative. I'm going to find what I actually know for certain, 100% certain. So the question is, how do you know what the truth is? I really recommend that you read the meditations, the first two at least. They're short, but they're fantastic. And Descartes, he guides you through his thinking step by step. It's like he's going through it in his head in real time as he writes it. It's a dialogue with his own thoughts. But I'm going to line out the basic steps. Descartes says, I remember so many times in my life where I was wrong about stuff, or even where my senses fooled me. Like, you know, those times where you could have sworn that was the case or that was the case, but you were wrong. So, how can I ever tell when I'm right or wrong? How can I tell the difference between all those times I'm 100% sure I'm right, but I'm actually wrong, and the times I really am right? Well, he says, I'm going to have to be rigorous about this. I'm going to have to throw away everything I believe, my whole worldview, take nothing for granted. And he says everyone needs to do this once in their lifetime. Question everything. Find out what you actually, truly know. And build it all back up from those more solid foundations. Descartes goes on, he says, Now, because I can't really tell the difference between what's true and what I just believe is true, I'm going to proceed systematically and question every belief and remove anything that can be doubted. Literally anything where there's even a minimum shadow of doubt that it might be false, I'm going to go ahead and just discard it as though it were 100% false. That way I know that whatever's left there is actually stuff that I do know and that I can be certain of. See, Descartes is uh, adopting a scientific method with his thinking. He's rigorously removing anything that's even slightly dubious. 
And he says, remember, my mind, it plays tricks on me. It convinces me I'm right when I'm not. It tells me I saw something when I didn't. Quote, but it is not sufficient to simply know this. I must try to keep it in mind. For familiar beliefs return constantly, and almost in spite of me, they seize hold of my judgment as if it were bound to them by established custom and the law of familiarity. Unquote. So be very careful. Okay, so question everything. Now, he says, I don't have time to go through every single belief, so instead I'm going to go to the foundational beliefs, the one, the kind of beliefs that everything else is based on. Now, most of my so-called knowledge I get through my senses, right? Stuff I see around me, stuff I read in books, stuff I hear from experts, from priests. But my senses, which are pretty much my, my data-collecting technology, they can deceive me, right? It's happened before. And I didn't realize I was being deceived till later. So how can I be sure they aren't fooling me all the time? Can I be sure? Mm, sounds like the senses are in doubt. In fact, fuck, when I'm dreaming, I see and hear stuff and I'm sure it's real. And the only reason I know it's not real is because I wake up later and I can look back and go, oh, that wasn't real. What if I woke up now? Could this right now just be a different kind of dream? How would I know if it was? So my ears, my eyes, my touch, the whole world around me right now, it's not beyond doubt. It's not certain. Discard. What about even more basic truths like maths, like 2 plus 3 equals 5? That's his actual example. Surely that's true even in dreams. But wait. If God wanted, couldn't he make me believe that 2 plus 3 equals 5 even if it didn't? Sure he could. So, I can doubt maths too. But then he thinks, okay, fine, God wouldn't mess with me like that. You know, he's a good guy, but God is. But, but say instead of a God, we had an all-powerful demon deceiving me into believing false information. An orange demon with a, with a yellow wisp of hair and tiny hands. Okay, he doesn't say that bit. But a demon that is powerful and can deceive him into believing falsehoods. If that was going on, how would I know? How would now feel any different to me? It wouldn't. So let's just go on ahead and assume that that's the case and that nothing around me is real. It's all just lies, an illusion, or a delusion rather. So it's like the Matrix maybe. There's no earth, no sky, no ears, no eyes, no body. Everything is uncertain. What about me? Am I certain? Well, Descartes says, here's the thing. We're saying that there's this evil trickster demon deceiving me. Someone needs to exist in order to be deceived. You know, I can't be deceived if I don't exist. But wait, what if I'm being deceived into thinking I exist? Well, if I think I'm something, then I can't be nothing because someone is doing that thinking, even if it's wrong thinking. So basically, as long as I'm thinking, I exist. Cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore I am. That much is certain. Now, today we can pick this apart. You know, Descartes is skipping a few steps here. He's assuming the I part of I think. But really, there's no reason to assume that there's a cohesive identity of self, of I. You know, as the philosopher Bertrand Russell remarked, if Descartes were being rigorous, he should have said, there is thought, there's thinking going on here. But we can let Descartes off the hook because it's a fabulous intuition, this. And it's the intuition that something exists, and that something is subjective experience, this sense of an inner subjective dimension, consciousness. Okay, so look, we've reached a point in which we've applied the tools of doubt and skepticism, and we've removed anything that is not 100% certain. And we realize that the only thing that is certain is this feeling of subjective experience, what Descartes calls I. That is, strictly speaking, the only thing we know that exists for sure. So now what? Well, remember, the whole point here is to find certainty. But it's not enough to be like, OK, I exist, have a nice day. You need to figure out what the hell we do about this. How do we find knowledge in this fragmented world? Can the answer really just be, well, the only knowledge possible is that you exist? And this is the great problem of Descartes, and I think all of philosophy. What to build up from that core truth of subjectivity, which really means bridging the gap between my subjective experience and yours. 
assuming of course that you're not also an illusion too so think about that you know that bridge bridging the gap between subjectivity and objectivity means finding something stable outside of myself something outside my own experience something that i can step out into from my own inner experience onto that common ground and then you can do the same and we know that when when we're on that common ground if i point behind you and say look out a tiger you know you're going to see me pointing at you you're going to know what i mean you're going to know what i'm pointing at you're going to see the tiger and you can act upon it without that stable reality outside of myself outside of yourself there's no common ground on which we can communicate it's like we're all just on our separate little boats you know separated by a dark stormy ocean no way to reach each other so here Descartes gets a bit silly. This is a third meditation. He says, we know that outside reality is actually not an illusion. And we know this because really, who are we kidding? It's not an evil demon that's deceiving us. The only thing that could deceive us with that kind of power, right, is God. And God wouldn't fuck with us that way because God is good. He's not trying to be a dick. God is what guarantees that the outer objective reality is stable, it's real, it's not an illusion. And the tools for understanding that outside objective world are the objective tools of logic and science and what Descartes calls the natural light of reason. God guarantees that those tools work. And how do I know God exists? Okay, this is quite silly. Descartes says, easy, this is just like the medieval philosophers said, you know, I can think of God and my mind couldn't create something greater than itself and God is of course greater than myself so the idea of God has to come from someplace other than me something greater than me and that's God I'm simplifying the argument but not by much but it's dumb because in a way it has to be because so far nobody has come up with a good answer to that question how do you make the leap from the absolute certainty of the subjective into the world of the objective how do you make the objective world certain how do you find certainty there if we know our senses are flawed and we don't actually experience reality as other people do or as reality really is no one's properly answered that the best they've done is sidestep the question, you know, and, okay, let's just assume we're not in the matrix because otherwise we're just going to be stuck here for ages. And then there's people like Berkeley, you know, he's saying, no, actually, we are in the matrix. It's just that we're all in the same matrix. So what you see in the matrix is the same as what I see in the matrix. We're all in the same one. Oh, and how do you know that, Berkeley? And he goes like, oh, yeah, God, again. See, God, he's like, he's, he's running this massive multiplayer online game that we're all hooked into, and he's guaranteeing that we're all running the same software, so we all see the same thing. Okay, thanks for that, Barclay. So back to Descartes. What we end up with by studying him and understanding more broadly the scientific revolution and the Enlightenment is answers we get to our big question. In a world where the single driving narrative, the single truth-seeking mechanism of religion, where that has broken down, where everything, even the nature of knowledge, is uncertain, how do you know which truth is true? How do you know anything? And, by the way, how do you govern people where there's more than one narrative around? What's the answer to the fragmentation of narratives? And in the Enlightenment, the answer to the first question of how do you know things, it's not God, it's reason. And the answer to the second question of government is no longer authoritarianism, whether, you know, a king's or a pope's, it's democracy. It's, oh, your narrative versus my narrative? Let's debate it. Let's shine the natural light of reason on the arguments, and then we put it to the vote. And the narrative that's most convincing, most convincing to most people, that one wins. So in Descartes' time and the Enlightenment that followed, the answer to the great question of fragmentation of narratives is reason and democracy. And that brings us to our time. Since the Enlightenment, we too have lived in a kind of certainty, in the certainty of reason and logic and science and democracy. And sure, there's been threats to it, you know, fascism and Nazism and communism, but by and large, our shared narrative has pulled through. And, you know, even in the 20th century, it's not like we really had a single narrative, like during the Middle Ages with the church and everything. There were all sorts of different narratives. That's the whole point with democracy, right? It's flexible. It can accommodate different viewpoints. And we just get to choose and vote on which one we prefer. 
but we still had certainty in in the process if nothing else and we also understood which narratives were kind of mainstream and approved and had sort of gone through the fact checking and of reason and logic etc and which ones were just sort of weird fringe stuff you know for tinfoil hat people you know and conspiracy theorists and all those people and for the longest time we knew that the stuff that the government said was true and the stuff on the nightly news that was true too you know we could trust the government and we could trust our anchorman and the news there was a dominant narrative and there were reliable sources of knowledge with authority but then things started to change again just like during you know the the early renaissance the vietnam war and then watergate suddenly the government just didn't seem that reliable and the media started changing too and it became less about facts and more about sensationalism so we started trusting that less too and then the iraq war happened and the financial crisis happened and those gave the final blow to our trust in institutions so what's the dominant narrative now whose version do we believe and of course in all this we have social media now your voice my voice we can be heard you know with our dumbass opinions and our bullshit narratives we can project those now we really have reach so with all these idiots with reach including myself by the way who do you listen to who do you trust and what are the powers that be doing all this what are they up to what's the modern day version of the pope doing well consider this Back in the Middle Ages, you know, the power had total control of the situation. It was a totalitarian system, a theocracy in that case. If any voice came up to challenge the narrative, it was silenced. But can we do that today? We can't, can we? We can't silence. It's contrary to the basis of our culture, you know, liberty, free expression, democracy. We can't. Even if we wanted to, even if I, as a power, wanted to silence a different narrative, I couldn't. I mean, I, I could silence a single medieval monk who's maybe spoken to a hundred people in some remote village. You know, I can cordon that off. But how do I silence millions of people with Twitter accounts? I can't. I simply can't. It's impossible to contain that. So what else can I do to make sure their voices can't be heard? I turn up the volume on all the other voices. Think about it. You're at a table and someone is talking loudly and you don't want them to be heard. You can either gag them, which isn't a good look, or you just start shouting too. You drown them out. And that's the other sinister side to our post-truth fake news era. You probably have heard of Vladislav Shurkov, you know, one of Putin's chief advisors and kind of his ideological right arm. It's like Putin's Goebbels. In case you haven't heard of him, Shurkov is the man who is most responsible for a form of media overload, a propaganda, which he describes as non-linear warfare. Basically, what he does and what Putin does is they flood the media with conflicting stories. And some of these stories are true, some of them are false. And then Shurkov and Putin, they finance opposition parties within Russia, opposition to themselves, by the way, both on the far right and on the far left. And to make it even more complicated, Shurkov makes a special point of letting everyone know that he's doing this, that he's behind it all. He'll openly talk about how he puppeteers all the opposition and then he'll attack them when they're up and defend them when they're down or sometimes do both in the same sentence and all the while it becomes harder and harder for the public to separate fact from fiction. It's just like, what the hell's going on? It reminds me of that comic where Lex Luthor finds out that Batman is Bruce Wayne. I think it was in Justice League. So Batman, he starts circulating fake news about Bruce Wayne being Batman. And he sets up all these conspiracy accounts where people are theorizing about different people being Batman, right? So basically, the rumor about Bruce Wayne, that theory, it just becomes one of the many. It's pure disinformation, not by silencing, but by drowning out the truth with thousands of different narratives. It's genius. But, you know, then again, he's Batman. And in this pure chaos and confusion, we have a breakdown of all narratives, of the possibility for groups and cohesive um, movements to form behind a single narrative because everything keeps shifting. 
so you know soldiers invade Crimea and people go hey those soldiers they're Russian right it's an invasion but then someone else says hey wait no they're not Russian these people they're not wearing official Russian uniforms but someone else says well you know they're totally Russian though that's exactly what they want you to think that they're not Russian and then someone else says no 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 that's actually not and then the Kremlin leaks emails saying that actually Shurkov was behind it all along and then he denies it but then he also kind of confesses that's how Putin rules it's always this attitude of I didn't do it or did I? You know, the nerve gas poisoning in London? Everyone's like, that gas is Russian military grade. You know, only the Russians have it. Of course they did it. But then you wonder, if it was Russia, and they're denying it was them, then why would they do it in a way that is just so obvious that it was them? That's the trick. I didn't do it. Or did I? And you're just left going, I don't know what to believe. When there's just chaos out there, pure uncertainty about what's true and what's fake news, and when every version of reality is as valid as any other, as invalid as any, every other, as long as there's enough people behind it or questioning it in this fragmented reality, who wins? Obviously, whoever can provide a clear, stable narrative. Because, as I said, we as animals prefer order to chaos. And in Russia, the provider of order is Putin, you know, the stable leader. He leaves everyone confused so he can then come in and provide clarity. Only to then tell you that's what he was doing all along, which leaves you even more confused. It's so destabilizing. He's like an abusive boyfriend who tears down your confidence so you'll be really grateful when he gives you a compliment. In America, you got Trump doing something similar. Not quite as smart, but similar. Actually, there's a great quote by the always fantastic Hannah Arendt on, on, in her work on totalitarianism. It's so applicable to Putin, to Trump... Listen to this, quote, In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses had reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived, because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. The totalitarian mass leaders base their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that under such conditions, one could make people believe the most fantastical statement one day, and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable truth of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest that they'd known all along that the statement was a lie, and would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness." Unquote. That's scary accurate, isn't it? Speaking of Trump, the narrative he gives us is just so simple. Us, them. Americans, real patriots. Then the other guys, the terrorists, the immigrants, the liberal media. We're good, they're bad. It's comforting, it's easy. And if any fact comes up that contradicts the reality, you don't have to deal with it rationally, it's just fake news. <laughs> That's your Trump card, literally. And to be fair, the other side have their version of it, you know. Their simple narrative is, we live in a white supremacist culture where every form of inequality is due to racism and sexism and any fact that contradicts my view on this, well, I don't have to deal with it rationally because you're a racist, you're a sexist, you're a bigot, and why would I debate with a bigot? And in all this, facts are just left on the roadside, they're ignored, because the only thing that matters is the narrative. See? All we're doing is choosing the reality that gives us the most certainty and then ignoring or shouting down all the other narratives. So, what do we do about it? We're almost at the end of this ramble and it's time to figure out what we can actually use to navigate this uh, post-truth world. So to summarize, we're dealing with a fragmentation of our narratives, of the stories we use to frame the world, so that everyone is pretty much living in a different version of reality. We're also dealing with the systemic distrust of the media and the institutions and the idea of knowledge itself, which makes it hard to know what or who we can trust and what even counts as a truth. 
This confusion leads people to find certainty by seeking greater refuge in, uh, in their own version of reality. So they kind of dig deeper within it and shut out outside influences as uh, fake news. They've built a, a very fragile equilibrium that relies on their reality being a closed system. And any contrary facts and ideas could destabilize that system. And we're also dealing with an increased hostility between the different worldviews due to groupthink and polarization. And the fact that with these fragile belief ecosystems, any external threat threatens your very identity. Refusal to engage in good faith makes it harder to find common ground between the worldviews. Now, the more I consider all this, the more I think that the fundamental problem here is the same one Descartes found when he uh, reached that one kernel of truth. I think I am. Consciousness, subjective experience. I know what I'm experiencing. I know that, that's stable. But outside, that's unstable because I don't really know that what I'm experiencing is really there. I have no idea what's really there. It's like we're all in our individual rooms, alone by ourselves, wearing a virtual reality headset. And once we take the headset off, outside it's just pitch black. And that's scary. So how do we step outside of ourselves, out of the comfortable stability of that subjective VR headset into the unknown and unknowable outside world? And how do we find firm ground there? Now, what many seem to be doing is projecting their stable subjectivity onto the outside. They're taking their own narrative, whatever it is, you know, Christian, liberal, conservative, LGBT activist, whatever, and they're universalizing that narrative and saying, this is the outside world. This narrative applies to you and you and you and everyone. But that's just wrong. Because these people, they might have left their room and they might have stepped out into the street, but they've kept their VR headset on. Dude, that's not stepping outside of subjectivity. That's blindly carrying it around with you. And sooner or later, you're going to trip over a hole in the ground that you didn't see because your headset was showing you smooth pavement. And I guess you could just call that fake news too, right? So, okay, how, how do we find firm ground outside? Personally, I don't think we find firm ground. I think we create that firm ground. And we do that by each doing our part, each of us paying attention to how we think, how we process, how we act, how we project narratives, so that we're not just mindlessly projecting our VR world onto the outside world, asking other people to buy into it and getting pissed off when they don't. We need to understand our reliance on stories and narratives and never forget that all they are is narratives. Even this, you know, everything I've said today in this podcast, all the bits of context that I gave, don't take my word for it. It's all just a narrative that I see the world through. The best I can do is make sure that the narrative fits the facts. The queen died and then the king died of heartbreak doesn't make much sense if the queen didn't actually die. Facts, that's what matters. Those really do work as a common ground, by the way, because facts, they're pretty much as objective as it comes. My big brother Enzo, he used to tell me, parti sempre dai fatti, always start with the facts. Whenever I'd argue that, you know, dad is being unreasonable, my brother always gently corrected me. So that's not a fact, that's a value judgment. What are the actual facts? What happened? It's fine to consider why something happened and then to form an opinion, a narrative on that, but it's fundamental to recognize which part is your story, which part is your narrative, which part is interpretation, and which part actually happened, which part is facts. We have to learn to tell the difference between facts and the narratives we automatically use to connect those facts. And we need to learn to not make unnecessary leaps from fact to narrative. Because the narrative can be wrong. Maybe the king was poisoned. But the fact that he died, that's a fact. And facts are never wrong. Another thing we can do, and this one's pretty hard, but I think it's important. We have to understand we're never going to have a single unified narrative for all of us ever again. And that's a good thing. You know, that usually means that there's a totalitarian system in place. We don't want a single narrative. We want pluralism. We want diversity of viewpoints. So what we need to do is not get pissed off at all these different viewpoints, but we need to embrace them. Fundamentally, we need to embrace uncertainty. Descartes, his whole skeptical approach, was about tearing down certainties to find the core of truth. 
and then expanding that core of truth to the outside world. But I think instead we should just accept that everything is at least potentially in doubt. And that's fine. All we need to do is, instead of seeing doubt and uncertainty as a threat to a rigid system of beliefs, make our worldview more flexible. You know, kind of like the material they use to make buildings in Japan you know, that absorb the uh, earthquake shock waves, right? When you're standing on a moving train, you don't lock your legs, you, you bend them slightly, you, you wave back and forth, you keep yourself bouncy, and our minds need to be the same. We need to be ready to accept new facts, be ready to accommodate them into our worldview, be ready and eager to change our minds. Even our deepest, most cherished beliefs and stories, we have to be ready to question them, like Descartes did, because there's always something that might happen that challenges everything we know. Keep an open mind. Be suspicious of certainty, of your own certainty. And if there's even a single belief that you have where there's literally nothing that could ever happen to call it into question, well, that's a red flag. That's a sign you need to look at that belief more closely because your mind's playing some kind of trick on you there. So check it out. Every belief must, in principle, be falsifiable. Like Socrates did, you know, the wise person knows that they know nothing at all. And the more certain you are of something, the more careful you need to be that that certainty isn't blinding you to other possibilities. And finally, dialogue, as usual here on The Great Everything. Because no matter what, no matter how rigorous and open-minded we are, no matter how open and eager we are to question our own narratives, we'll still have a narrative. Of course we will. How else are we going to make sense of the world, right? It's what we do as animals. And at some point, that narrative is going to clash with other narratives, and we won't be able to just ignore them. And there, we'll only have two options communication or conflict please pick the first communication shifts the game see because now it's not about bridging the gap between my reality and external reality but between my reality and yours and that means engaging in good faith don't be too judgmental and shine what Descartes calls the natural light of reason on the facts and know that communication doesn't mean shouting down the other guy and calling them dumb, you know, saying they've been duped. Because, right, their worldview might be fake news. But if fake news is all they see, then guess what? To them, you're fake news too. Hey fellow doubters, thanks for making it so far, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Great Everything. And again, apologies, it's been so long since the last one, I will uh, do my best to make sure this never happens again, well, at least uh, as far as within my power. But uh, if you do enjoy what I do here, please consider helping out in a way that is absolutely free of cost to you, but that could make a real difference to me. And what I mean is leaving a review or a rating wherever it is you listen to The Great Everything, whether that's iTunes or Apple or Google or Stitcher, or I don't think you can do it on Spotify, but if you can, please go ahead and try. It really um, will incur my uh, incredible gratitude, which is a very awkward way of phrasing that. However, you can also help out by adding me on social media, you know, the usual places, Twitter, at TGEblog, which is a name that I'm not a big fan of. Maybe you have a better suggestion. But also on Facebook. And in fact, speaking of Facebook, a couple of weeks ago, I started a new little project there. It's uh, still The Great Everything, and it's a discussion group where uh, we basically talk about anything, not just the typical The Great Everything topics, you know, social, political stuff, and philosophy, and art, and culture, but really we talk about anything, or rather everything, that's the whole point, as long as it's interesting and as long as it's respectful. I mean, recently someone asked for a recipe for Italian tagliatelle, so really it's all about how we discuss and how we keep things interesting rather than what we're discussing. For now, I've been keeping it closed to just a few friends of mine, so there's only about 80 of us there, but if you want to um, join in and be a part of a fun discussion about anything at all and 
a place where you can just be free to express anything as long as you do it politely, well, you know, try and look for The Great Everything on Facebook, the group, not the page. You can find the page and there's a link on the page to the group, but uh, you can join in, I'll add you and uh, you can be a part of the discussion both online and uh, here on the podcast. Anyway, thank you as always. It's been a pleasure for me. I hope it's been as great a pleasure for you, at least uh, comparable. And I will catch you soon, here or elsewhere. Arrivederci. Patrick of The Great Everything, this is Dewan and only of The Fried Oreo. And I just wanted to say to you, Congrats on episode 59. What a triumphant comeback that was. We all need a break from Anchor every now and then, and we don't always need to give people an explanation about it. But more to the topic, I thought it was very interesting. This age of information that we live in, could it have been the downfall? Fake news had an opening because there's so much information out there, you don't know where to look or where to go to. But facts, as you stated, should be always the constant remaining thing through all of it. And ignoring dialogue and conflict isn't that at the basis of everything within our society and culture. But thank you for this episode. It was good shit, man. Good shit. It's exactly what Trump does. And I'm certain that's where you're getting to. I just had to stop because I got excited. So I'm just responding to something that you said. You you basically said, how do you stop someone from saying what they want to say when everyone has, you know, freedom of expression and speech? And so what you do is you just you shout louder. Um, And it's exactly what Trump does. And so I'm just here just to agree with you. (laughs) Um, but I love it. Keep keep saying what you're saying. I love it. Um, I really wish uh, I was at a particular school that would allow for what you're what you're saying to be heard. But, you know, it's all about paper and pencil here. All right. Have a good one. I support you. <laughs>